Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Colin Hansen about his new book on Tim Keller. And primarily, we talk about Keller's legacy and what we can learn from him both in life and ministry. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Colin. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation. You can also check out the Christian Standard Commentary, a new commentary series featuring the CSB with volumes from Tom Schreiner, from Timothy George, Patrick Schreiner, and a host of others. We're also brought to you by Cedarville University's Graduate School. You can do residential programs in our graduate school at Cedarville that include athletic training, PA studies, and pharmacy, as well as a BA MDiv, a five-year program where you get a bachelor's degree and a master of divinity in our very rigorous residential program here. We also have online graduate programs, including business, innovation, leadership, ministry, nursing, worship, and a whole host of other options that we have for undergraduate and graduates. So please check us out at cedarville.edu slash graduate. And now my conversation with Colin Hansen. But first, no big deal. I am joined by Colin Hansen. Colin, thanks for being on Church Grammar. Glad to be here, Brandon. I was thinking back, uh, you gave me one of my first public writing opportunities. We were just talking about my TGC article <laughs> going up today. We're recording this. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think it was 2013, you gave me my first opportunity to write for TGC. And it was an absolutely terrible post about <laughs> the God and being a father. And I was having a, you know, our, we had our first child. I can't remember what it was, but it was bad. But. <laughs> Um, is that supposed to be a reflection on you or on no. me? Because it sounds like it's, it's a reflection <laughs> on me as the editor. <laughs> yeah, now, that I, now that I think about it, uh, my, my first draft was better. No, uh, <laughs> no, it's funny. I was thinking about uh, that was one of the first times, too, that I submitted something online and I actually got feedback. Like, you actually did make it better. That was my next one, but you jumped ahead of it before I could compliment you. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it was actually it was great. It was, it was still uh, probably wasn't very good, but you made it better. So. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, you know, I know that you're 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 being very generous, giving me some time here because you have been talking about the Tim Keller book for a while now. Um, I guess my, my first thing I was thinking about, you know, we we all knew he was sick, but it is really maybe serendipitous is the word. I don't know what the word is to sort of have the book launch, him get to experience the launch of it, and then him pass away kind of right in the middle. So maybe mm-hmm. reflect a little bit just on that process of you know writing it, how involved was he in writing it, and then kind of what's mm-hmm. it been like to go through that with him all the way to the end here. Yeah, that's a perceptive question, Brandon. Um, you know, the original plan was for the book to come out at the end of April, and instead it came out at the beginning of February. And that mm. was because um, the first time Tim went through this same cancer treatment, he nearly died a year ago, June. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, and then there was another scare around Christmas time, the new year. Uh, so, But back in June, we... We pushed up the pub date. We kind of squeezed out all of the other, you know, uh, kind of extra space that we had in there or sort of fallback space and said, we have to get this out there because it's a sensitive thing to write about somebody who's alive. And I didn't want to give the impression of, hey, 
he just died. Now here's a book. Mm-hmm. I just felt like that would come across as opportunistic or something like that. And then if there were questions about the book, people couldn't ask him. He wouldn't be able to comment about mm-hmm. it. So it just felt important to me that it come out before he died. And when he died this year, I, it, it's not like we expected that. Um, we knew it was bad, but he would not have, <clears throat> excuse me. It, I don't think he would have gone through that treatment again if they thought it wasn't going to give him much time mm-hmm. at all. So, so we were certainly hopeful and prayerful about, about him having years still with us. But yeah, it's just when you're, when you're working with something like that, <clears throat> Tim, Tim simultaneously gave me a lot of leeway on what to write. At the same time, he gave me a lot of support in terms of his interviews with me, as well as his, his willingness to vouch for me with other people. But I think it was important in the end that he essentially be able to say, yes, I worked with Colin on this book, but it's his work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way for people to understand the book now going forward is that this is the best effort I could give to explaining Tim Keller's spiritual and intellectual formation with his help and with the help of many of his friends and family. But in, in, but in an important sense, Tim would have wanted everybody to know that this was not the only take ever. Uh, <laughs> this was certainly my highly informed take. And I, and I thought it was important at least that someone would be able to do it officially and formally with him so that we would always have that no matter what going forward. And so, yeah, I don't, th- I don't know if serendipitous is the right way to, to put it, but <clears throat> we, we planned for this exact kind of situation and it did work out as we, as we um, hoped that it would in the sense that it was trying to mitigate against what we feared would happen. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the serendipitous happy part of it is that he got to yeah. be a part of it. Right. Um, well, and, and, and Brandon, <clears throat> one thing that is, is really significant is that it brought so many people out of the woodwork from his life to be able to celebrate that when he still had months to live. Yep, yep. And I know that was not a motivation for him, but it was a motivation for me. Um, and if, if Tim received even half of the messages that I received from his friends, from his family, from people people at Redeemer back in the early years, mm-hmm. then I hope that that was, I never talked with him about this, but I hope that was a sincere encouragement to him at the end of his life. Yeah. And one of the dangers of a, you know, this isn't an authorized bio, but one of the dangers of the type of authorized bio is some guy wants somebody to write a book about him. And so he goes and finds a sympathetic yeah. figure. You know, obviously that wasn't what happened here. So right. what, what was the, what was the process of when, were there parts of it that he was like, I don't like this, but you can do it. Or, you know, how, what was the involvement he had in shaping what you were doing there? Yeah. So we, we explored all sorts of different approaches to things. And in the end, we didn't even call it a biography for the, right. for the reason that it was not a full account of his influence, of his influence. Um, but I don't think that book can be written for a long time. I mean, just look at the, just look at the response to his, to his death. Yeah. My book again came out months before that. So you would, any biography would have to take it into account 
his full life, how it ended, and how people responded to him, and how people reflected on him. And as you know, as well as a theologian, there will be years and years and years and years and years of church leaders and academics and historians who are going to debate and dialogue and discuss and sort of situate person with somebody within their influence. So I didn't even I didn't even take that approach mm-hmm. in terms of writing a biography. There was an authorized dimension of it. <clears throat> but even then, I think I think Tim had the right instinct. He said, this is going to make people think that you wrote what I wanted you to write and that I'm the one who asked you to do it. When in mm-hmm. fact the publisher asked me to do it and I agreed to do it. And then I agreed for you to be the writer of it. And I agreed to vouch for you in terms of interviews. But in the end, it was interesting. He, he read, I mean, he and Kathy both read through the whole manuscript. Kathy gave me some more direction in terms of things that she thought, you know, Kathy is a book editor. So she gave me more thoughts of like, this doesn't really seem to apply to your subject matter Mm -hmm. in there. So it wasn't about perceptions of her or the family. It was about things she just didn't think were, I mean, I I have a, I'm going to be releasing a section on Tolkien and then another section on Loveless that she thought were just kind of extraneous to the book. So she was able to help me with that. And Tim decided to take a different approach. Uh, Tim's approach was instead to say, I'm not going to comment directly on your text and tell you what to say and what not to say. What I am going to do is write out my own thoughts for your eyes only on my own development. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about that, Brandon, is that he did that after reading my book. So in an important, that, that was essentially for my eyes only to be able to fill in any gaps that he thought might've been exposed, but it was not to be able to kind of dictate what I would say or not to say or to or to give me a basic framing. In fact, I ended up rejecting his basic framework <laughs> because he th- he organized it around decades, but in a biography of or in a, in a book looking at formation, I had to focus so much on his early decades, yeah. especially his time at Bucknell and Gordon-Conwell, whereas he wanted to put those in the same decade. I thought, no, I I have to have like four chapters just on Gordon-Conwell in here. So that was the kind of the give and take there. So, so I have that, I had that to be able to compare. And let me just give you one example of something that, that I had not picked up on that he wanted me to make sure to include. And that was the influence of neo-Calvinism. I had some of that for sure in there, especially via Roger Nicole back with Bavink's work and that he studied at Gordon Conwell. But that was a relatively late sort of flourishing or blooming, I should say, for Tim, especially under the influence of some of my fellows at the Keller Center, Grace Satanto, James Eglinton, uh, Corey Brock, and and others there. So that was something he was also in the process of writing about neo-Calvinism and writing about pastoral ministry um, in the last year of his life. So he was thinking a lot about that. And so that was one of the areas that I felt like, oh, I don't see as much of this in your sermons or in your books um, or in your previous discussions, but this is something that you're coming to understand relatively later in your life. So I made sure to include quite a bit of that. Yeah. What was, you've mentioned some things that have been cut from it. What was one thing that you left on the cutting room floor that you wish had been in there that's not? (laughs) 
Oh, that's gotta be loveless. Um, so, you know, loveless is such a, he's, he's a funny story, but he's also a tragic story. And it's kind of hard to know where the one leaves off and the other picks up. Um, because he, the, the fact is he was bipolar and, um, that was a struggle for him. And I included quite a bit and this will be published separately, but I included uh, quite a bit from his, um, from his uh, son's memoir of the family. Uh, but Loveless was very colorful from teaching courses on Jonathan Edwards in his house while snakes roamed freely <laughs> um, to having one of his, I think it was a pet alligator at his church, jump out at the church organist to showing an entirely inappropriate film to youth and getting fired over it mm. in his church. But I think the the line that stood out to me the best and this is not a coincidence with the Keller's own boys, but um, you know he named his he named his sons after his two heroes, who were Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd. Loveless did, but he did his PhD work on a different Puritan, uh, Cotton Mather, and then he you know this joke from students was you've got a Jonathan Loveless and a David Loveless. But it was lucky that there was no boy ever born whose name was Cotton Loveless. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that, was a, that was a memorable line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so if we're thinking about, you know, this is, this is the, the thing that you're doing that's unique here, trying to talk about the development of his thought and his spiritual life. So if you could give kind of briefly a couple of people that you'd say, if you want to understand Tim Keller, these are the people you need to read or understand who who are those handful of figures that just deeply shaped everything that he is well i'll give one who's obvious and one who's not so the the one who's obvious is c.s lewis uh, mako fujimura's comment to me was what what really stood out he said you always knew if tim keller didn't have time to prepare his sermon that week because he would just quote lewis a bunch and <laughs> hey we didn't mind because it was so great <laughs> yeah <laughs> lewis was the person that i mean tolkien was the person that tim never stopped reading he was always reading tolkien lewis was the person that he never stopped quoting if you just caught him in the middle of whatever and asked him to quote somebody make an argument it was an appeal to lewis um so that's that's pretty obvious what tim admired about lewis so much is that he was such a a concrete visual uh writer and speaker Mm -hmm. and tim thought that that basically a lot of preaching including his own was too abstract and so he really loved the word pictures that lewis um it is one of the main reasons that we still read Lewis today. Uh, the other person is is not as obvious, Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney was an absolute titan of the evangelical generation ahead of Tim, but I don't think many people are reading or appreciating him to that level today. And I, and I think one of the ways that I could honor Tim and why Tim, I'm sure, agreed to do the book was to honor men in that previous generation like um like Ed Clowney. Clowney was his only personal mentor and the only mentor who walked through his entire life from just becoming a Christian at at Bucknell, 1970, all the way through the 2000s when Redeemer was already a a megachurch in New York City. Mm. Um, And of course, probably the message that Tim is most closely associated with, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons, his basic interpretation with his own adaptations belongs to Ed Clowney. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure the lineage with Ed Clowney, but the basic Christ-centered hermeneutic, um, 
that Clowney picked up through the Princeton tradition um, of Westminster uh, from Voss uh, all the way through. That is, um, that's an absolute must in terms of understanding Tim Keller. And, and I'm just, I'm not sure how many people are still reading Clowney, but I do hope that people are listening to his lectures. We have them up at timothykellerbook.com, especially the, the lectures that Clowney preached when Tim was a, a first year student at Gordon Conwell. Yeah. Yeah. Clowney is, is one of those, like if you, if you think about Christ-centered preaching or preaching Christ in all of scripture, or yeah. even really sort of p- preaching in biblical theology, I yeah. mean, Clowney's is, is influenced so many people. He's the classic, like the man behind the curtain, you know, like you yeah. quote Keller and you're really quoting Clowney a lot, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, you're either quoting Clowney or Jack Miller, basically yeah. um, your, I guess, <laughs> between, between those two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as we think about, I, I want to talk about just bigger picture things we can learn from Tim Keller. I think, uh, you know, his death, I think everybody knew he was influential. Everybody knew he was well-known. I think it, it was even, even for somebody like me, who's been influenced by him and you, and you can speak to this too. I was shocked by just how well loved and respected he was after his death. I mean, it was just, the outpouring was, was unbelievable. Um, so, so what are some things, you know, we, I want to talk more specifically about marriage and ministry and things like that, but big picture, what do you think the handful of things are that you've noticed after he's died that you said, man, these are the couple of things people have just kept coming back to when it comes to why Keller was so important or so influential? Well, that's a great question, Brandon. Um, I think what, what stood out to me is how curious he was. And I think a lot of the responses echo the basic premise of my book which is that you can learn from a lot of different people, including your critics, without having to agree with them yeah. on everything. That is a particular characteristic of our generation and of the social media dynamic that you have to put everybody into a category of love or hate. Your team or the other team, good guys, bad guys, black hats, white hats, that kind of thing. Tim utterly rejected that. And I think you can see it very specifically um, in a number of different cases. And so I don't imagine that many people ever heard Tim Keller criticize N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. In fact, many would associate them very closely with each other in terms of their influence, in terms of people's experience with them, in terms of their overlapping audiences. But Tim and N.T. and Tom Wright are divided in a basic way on the nature of the gospel, especially as it relates to the Reformation mm-hmm. and Martin Luther in particular. That is as core important to Tim's ministry as anything. Mm-hmm. So they were on complete opposite sides on the single most important thing to Tim's ministry. And yet what you normally heard from Tim, I mean, Tim implicitly criticized Tom Wright just by all of the ways that he would continue to affirm the reformational approach to justification by faith alone, or in his recommendations of Michael Horton's works. Right. Yeah. Um, So you could see that, but what you would normally get from him, as you've seen in the conversion story of Molly Worth, and as an example is a robust recommendation that everybody who can read N.T. Wright's work on the resurrection Mm -hmm. that has not been surpassed. So I think that's the dynamic that, that he, it feels like he comes from a different world than the one that we're caught up in, that he could learn from all kinds of different people. He could synthesize them into his approach, but he didn't feel the need to demonize them in the places that he disagreed. But at the same time, he wasn't wishy-washy. 
know, he he was not uh, he, he was not uh, compromising on things. So a lot of people might not realize how many conversations he carried on behind the scenes. And some of them have come out yeah. with uh, with people who disagreed with him about women in ministry. Uh, people like Tish Warren, who's an Anglican priest. I mean, she talked about this. I mean, carried on quite a bit of dialogue with some other people behind the scenes, like Kristen Dumay, um, in terms of, I mean, he was not gay affirming. He did not agree with her on a number of things, but he talked with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and just there was that kind of dialogue. I mean, we've seen it most most clearly in Jonathan Rauch. We're talking a gay atheist here yes. who just testifies to the amazing friendship that they that they shared. I I think we could use a whole lot more of that. Um, and I think I've been I've been really, really blessed to be able to be profoundly and personally shaped by two people who I'm bringing this up, Brandon, with you specifically. I bet you know where I'm going on this. Two people who were both born in 1950 who demonstrate that same characteristic. The other, of course, is Timothy George. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Timothy and, and Tim, the two Tims there, they would they would disagree with each other on a number mm-hmm. of things. But um, they both model that same dynamic of confessional fidelity and theological charity. Now, in different ways, they wouldn't agree with each other, again, on things like ECT as an, as an important example. But that kind of spirit is something that I... I hope we can continue to perpetuate in the next generation. And I think that's why you've seen such a widespread response to his death. Yeah. I think you're bringing up all those, the, uh, pro- the, the personal emails that so many people brought out of, I critiqued him and he emailed me <laughs> and you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, on the one hand you probably received that email and be like, Oh no. Um, but you know, it's funny with him. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, as we're talking about it, you know, uh, his foray into Twitter was not always, it was cl- clumsy is probably the, maybe a, a generous yeah, word for I, it. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead and ask your question. I, <laughs> I, I didn't, I was not a, a big fan of how Tim used uh, Twitter to be clear. Well, it, se- go it ahead. seemed like, it seemed like he was, he was often like critiqued and I was like, I don't I actually think a lot of people will say like, Oh, I don't use Twitter. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. I felt like a lot of times he really wasn't, didn't realize that the medium was not set up for the curiosity. He liked. <laughs> So yeah, reflect on on that. Yeah. I don't want to insult him or well, anything. No, 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 no. No, here's so here's what um, here's what a lot of people may or may not know about Tim. So Tim did not have a lot of hobbies. Let, let me let me compare let me compare him to Timothy George. Okay, mm-hmm. so I remember Timothy George at one point <laughs> told me that he was the most technical technologically advanced board member of First Things. This was something like you know ten plus years ago, and I remember thinking, Doctor George. We still print out your emails <laughs> at Mason Divinity School. Like he just, you got the sense that if you were talking with with Timothy George, you know, he's on the other end of the hallway from me now at Mason Divinity School. If I run into him, it's more like I'm. An, if I asked him about something that was happening on Twitter, he'd respond to me with something kind like, "Oh, Colin, I, I'm sorry, I haven't seen that. I'm sorry, I spent the last week at the Vatican in dialogue." You know, <laughs> like he he wouldn't say that. Tim was different. The internet was made for Tim because he loved to read everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. So he was famous in the 2000s for commenting on blogs. He was reading all this stuff out there, including the Gospel Coalition. He wasn't necessarily giving us a lot of direction, but he was paying attention to this stuff. He was reading it for somebody 
who was such an incredible, voracious reader. Oh my goodness. The, the internet was this amazing blessing for him. And especially in the last three years of his life, you had the pandemic and the cancer diagnosis. So essentially he lived his entire life online uh, through Zoom meetings and emails and phone calls and and things like that. In some ways, it was actually a, you know, a positive because he got to do so mo- so much more of that than he had to when he had to do a lot of traveling and speaking earlier in his life. But as I've reflected on a recent book that I'm reading about about generations, the author makes a comment about how you couldn't pay her enough money to understand how to use TikTok. <laughs> And I am one of those geriatric millennials, and I'm the same way. You can't yeah. pay me. I just don't understand the medium, and it's important for me to admit that. And I think in some ways, Tim really loved Twitter because it gave him such widespread immediate access mm-hmm. to all kinds of different information and links and simultaneously allowed him to engage, which he loved to do. But the thing that was hard for him on Twitter is something that I learned from watching him and that I've learned also as the editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. Twitter is set up such that you cannot punch down. You can only punch up. Mm -hmm. So if you're an institutional or an established leader, people can say all kinds of things about you, but you can't really defend yourself. Defending yourself automatically makes it look like you are, quote unquote, stooping to their level. And it, it's just it's pretty much impossible for that kind of defense. And so when you would have a lot of quotes that would come from Tim's sermons, they wouldn't necessarily translate very well to that medium. And then he'd always end up having to jump in and defend himself about that, but it doesn't, didn't really work. And so it's just, it's just kind of a reminder to all of us to, to a certain level, the medium is the message. And Tim could excel in so many different media, but you'd be better off reading one of his books or listening to one of his sermons than trying to follow his quotes on Twitter. Right. Well, yeah, it's interesting because he, because he is this curious person who loves to dialogue and sends all these emails that we are hearing about. He did, he did it. Twitter's not built for that type of, that type of interaction, you know? So it was like, you know, it was, it was those things where you felt like there was, it was good natured and well-intentioned and just not the right medium for it, you know? Uh, yeah. There's a bit of a, bit of an okay boomer involved, yeah. uh, process involved yeah. there. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I, look, he believed that he could try to show how to, how to be a generous godly person on that medium. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't think, look, I I never saw him do anything bad on the medium in terms of, you know, sinful. I'm just saying it was harder. And you can see why so many other major Christian figures have moved to a position of one-way dialogue on Twitter. It really does not work very well in two-way discussions. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk bigger picture because I think, you know, Keller is one of those figures that He's obviously influenced a lot of people. You know, I, I was thinking about all the random sort of things I know about that he was involved in, which is probably yeah. scratching the surface, like early Acts 29 days, Keller's yeah. kind of around, obviously yeah. co-founded TGC. I mean, his his opinion was valued by people across the world in various places. Um, if you could, as a, you know, you're a journalist and historian, you, you think a lot and write a lot about these type of things. I know it's almost impossible to do, but can you can you gauge what you think 100 years from now? 
Yeah. What do you think is going to be? Because I feel like he's probably one of those people that will still be read. Um, what do you think about just his lasting influence? Yeah. So I, it's a it's a good question, and of course, with the caveat that there's no way that any of us could possibly know. Um, I think about it in a bifurcated manner. At the very least, if we're still going to be reading John Stott and J.I. Packer uh, from the previous generation in a hundred years then I think we'll still be reading Tim Keller. I think there's a lot of similarity. Um, In some ways, Tim published more widely than they did, but in some ways not. I mean, Packer was also a journalist, a working journalist, and a lot of his best theology came serialized. So in many ways, Packer and and Stott then was a a pastor, of course, like Tim. So I think somewhere in that John Stott, J.I. Packer mode, if we're still reading them in 100 years the way that we read some major figures from the 19th century, like a Spurgeon, of course, then, um, then I think we'll, we'll still be, we'll still be reading him. No doubt about that. The bigger question, Brandon, is whether or not he's seen as a pivotal transitional figure. Mm -hmm. And that is for other people to be able to answer. And there's no way for me to talk about this without sounding somehow uh, overly grandiose, But I do think there is a pattern within Reformed Protestantism that tends to merge together sort of cosmopolitan transformations in culture. And I mean, what I mean by that in cosmopolitan is a place like Geneva. You know, this is a place of refugees. It's a it's a it's a it's a place that's a a vanguard of the modern world. You know, uh, under Calvin's leadership, of course, in part, it becomes this global city that it remains today. Mm-hmm. But it just it, that that placing made a big difference. Or you could look at the the Clapham sect, and you could look at that in in London uh, in the 18th century. You could then look at you could look at uh, Bavinck and Kuiper then at the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. That basic reformed instinct of applying the gospel to all of life and merging together a contextualization to a modern development. And and of course, I'm leaving out here one of the biggest examples. He was not in a cosmopolitan location. That was Jonathan Edwards. He was in a bit of a backwater in Western Massachusetts, especially when he wrote some of his greatest works in Stockbridge. Mm -hmm. But of course, he was heavily engaged because of the transatlantic trade in a lot of the most pressing ideas of the early Enlightenment. And so I think if we look back, I wonder if we will begin to reassess Keller as, I mean, everybody knows he's he was a very successful practitioner. I wonder if we're going to come to appreciate him more as a theoretician mm-hmm. um, of somebody who actually re, you know, brought ideas to bear that changed our world. Um, because there's a lot of things, Brandon, that you and I are, we kind of just grew up in that world, but there's a lot that wasn't there before Tim, Hmm. uh, that he seemed to bring, that he seemed to bring together. So that's the only question of, does he begin to enter that kind of place? Because I guess what, I mean, here's one of the questions. I don't know how many other evangelical leaders could have been remembered the same way that he was. I mean, the one that I can clearly think of is Billy Graham, but what's interesting about Billy Graham is that he's not the kind of person who's going to be read because that wasn't his gifting. Yeah. Uh, second, he 
he quote unquote died too late. Most of the people that he'd influenced had also gone. He, uh, Tim was much younger, 25 years younger, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, than Billy when he died. So, so many of us are still around um, who've, who've been affected by him so much. So, those are all the different things that come into uh, come into play here of, you know, Billy Graham will be remembered for a long time because of the influence that he had, but he won't be remembered a long time necessarily because people will be reading his books and to a certain extent, listening to his messages. Whereas Tim probably has a chance to be a little bit more similar to a Spurgeon in that regard, where his messages and his, and, and of course now we have all this audio of Tim as well. So his podcast may continue to uh, continue to endure or with the way generations work today, Gen Z might just have forgotten that he ever lived. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's not quite clear. Well, speaking of that, we, we should have gotten him on TikTok while we had a chance. You know, like, oh, um, <laughs> can you only imagine? That's, uh, that's my point. I mean, I can't <laughs> even imagine doing that, let alone trying to figure yeah. that out in your seventies. Okay. So let's talk about some, some big picture. Like if you could give some tips for life, that we can learn from Tim Keller. I'll do a few yeah. few here. Maybe the, the first one is just his own personal devotion and spiritual life. What are some things that you learned from him that we yeah. can learn from him? Oh, man. Tim's emphasis was something that I struggle with so much, and that's intimacy with God in prayer. I mean, like praying until you, 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 experience, you experience God. Um, that is something that he emphasized, especially at the end of his life. You can see it throughout. Tim was very much a Puritan in this sense. He was not content and very much a revivalist. He was not content unless he was truly Jacob wrestling with God to get that blessing of intimacy with God. Um, that's, that's, that's the number one, I think thing I think of, of him there. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting the way all these things will, will flow out from this in many ways, but yeah. Um, how about marriage? You know, I use meaning of marriage when I do premarital counseling, marriage counseling, when I need a pick, when I need a marriage, pick me up, yeah. my wife and I, I mean, meaning of marriage is kind of our go-to and Kathy, yeah. obviously people have known this and I think it's becoming more clear how yeah. crucial she was to his entire <laughs> yeah. you know, life and ministry. So maybe some, some tips on marriage from the that color. was, that was certainly a, a major goal of my book was to help situate the, the influence of Kathy. And, and I, I do think that's, that's one of the effects of the book. Um, you know, the thing that I think about with them is just how much marriage has declined. Uh, the millennial and Gen Z generations especially just have not been getting married at nearly the same levels. And I remember the Kellers just, and they were married, of course, at a young age, right out of graduate school. And I remember their their discussion in there of the kind of marriage that you build as two partners with your lives already figured out versus the kind of marriage where you figure out life together. Mm -hmm. They can both work, but it can be a little bit harder when you get older if you come into marriage not realizing the extent to which the two must become one Mm -hmm. because you've developed so much independence on your own already. So I don't know that the killers necessarily would be telling everybody you should get married young, but I know that they would be telling people that you shouldn't be afraid of yep. getting married young. Um, that just because everybody else is waiting until 30 doesn't mean that you need to have everything figured out, including your career and financial independence before you get married. They would reject that advice for sure. Yeah. Something I feel like I've sensed from hearing them in interviews together or reading meaning of marriage. Part of that seems to be that they really did have that experience of growing up together in that sense. Yeah. And in some ways, I, this is, you could tell me if I'm wrong about this, but sometimes I feel like part of why I identify with them is they have 
what I would consider to be a very healthy complementarianism, yeah. which is that they're not sort of like you are you and you are you, and we're going to, we're going to make all this stuff work, but actually that they just have had a partnership in life and ministry since the beginning. And that's, that's deepened and matured the way that they perceive marriage. Yeah. The, the thing that confounds so many different people about the Kellers when it comes to complementarianism is that they are simultaneously very firm on the importance of it. Mm-hmm. Very firm. And and I, I don't even know. Some people sometimes are surprised by that. But if you read my book, you should not be surprised by that. You you and for them, it is very closely associated with biblical authority. So it's some of the stereotype that people give. No, they they watched this play out in the early years of evangelical feminism. That's one mm-hmm. of the most important things I write about in my book. At the same time, they are nothing culturally stereotypical about marriage. So, of course, I live in the South and I grew up in the Midwest. They're from Pennsylvania and lived in New York with a brief time in Pennsylvania and then in Virginia. They just don't conform to regional stereotypes of, of, of masculinity and femininity. So you just, you would never look at Kathy and think of her as some sort of stereotypical pastor's wife. You would not look at them as, oh yeah, Tim's the the bronze and Kathy's the comfort. You know, it's mm-hmm. just that's just not the way it looks. So that's one reason why I think they're so um, appealing in how they've related, but also so confounding to so many people because they just don't fit those stereotypes. Yeah, growing up a, a Texas boy, I've got all the <laughs> cultural manhood stereotypes you could yeah. you could want, and I think that's it's encouraging for me, I guess, as a husband sometimes to see somebody like Tim who who just seems to model such uh, humility and patience and generosity toward his wife. Like I remember, I listened to an interview a while back, and uh, between the two of them, it wasn't that long ago, but um, I can't remember where it was. But they did an interview together. And I don't know how many times he punted to her where he was like, she can speak to this better than me, you know? And it was just like, it's it's so simple, but it's one of those things where it's just like a refreshing thing to hear. Like he is, it really is elevating her intelligence and her opinion in a way that I just felt like, man, we could just do that better. I'm not saying complimentary, you know, I'm not trying to bash complimentarians as one, but the yeah. way that he honors, he continues to honor her and the way she honors him, I think is really, really something we can take. Well, I, and this is what I hope people got out of the book that if you saw Tim and you talked to Tim, you truly got to know Tim. But when you saw him with Kathy, now a lot of stuff started to make a whole lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why at we had many occasions at the Gospel Coalition, and you can find these videos um, on our YouTube page or, or in our podcast, but we had many t- opportunities to be able to feature them together. And they were just a fun couple. Yeah. They were just a fun couple to be able to see together because of those dynamics. And I would say that goes all the way back to Kathy being one of the last people to write C.S. Lewis, to Kathy mm-hmm. recommending the Chronicles of Narnia to Tim via her sister at Bucknell, to them being together, winking at each other across from the room at Gab Fest with R.C. Sproul at Ligonier Valley Study Center, to being best friends starting the Edmund P. Clowney Fan Club, to studying together under, um, you know, of, of, of biblical counseling at Westminster Seminary, staying with the same woman, you know, the two of them living for a month with the same woman, um, you know, in, in a house in Philadelphia, to then coming back dating 
after that and then being inseparable ever yeah. since. Like, I just, I hope people got to really see that full story because you just can't tell the story of Tim Keller without Kathy in a way that I'm just, I'm not sure we have a parallel yeah, like right. that. I mean, you, there's a lot of stuff on, on Susanna Spurgeon and on Ruth Graham and on, um, you know, a number of people like that who also play uh, Sarah Edwards, even, um, you do see a significant role that they play, but, um, it's really hard to imagine Tim without Kathy. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So ministry is obviously all wrapped up in all this as well. So two part on his ministry, yeah. what can we learn from him as a pastor? And then what can we learn on some of this theoretical stuff you're talking about in terms of yeah. the bigger picture type things? Well, as a pastor, essentially, is the is the significance of being able to adapt to your context. So he just wasn't the same kind of pastor in Virginia that he was in New York. Um, some people will tell me things like, oh, it, should Tim's ministry in Hopewell, Virginia, which people are seeing really in depth for the first time through my book, should that be a model for us? And I say, well... It, it in the same it's kind of like Baxter's reformed pastor mm -hmm. um it's a good aspiration it also burned him out i mean 9 years in in his mid 30s with three boys tim was burned out yeah um he took basically two full-time jobs at westminster and said it felt like a sabbatical to him compared to being <laughs> a pastor preaching three times a week doing all the counseling all the visitation so and and then of course in new york he's a very different dynamic his ministry especially in the beginning was still very personal but he wasn't doing the same kinds of things that he was doing in Hopewell. And especially toward the end of his life, he definitely was not nearly as intimately involved in a lot of details of the church. And it just goes back to his basic observation that many people have said, you have to understand what kind of ministry your people are asking for. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, of course, was the same gifted person his entire life. But if he tried to do in Hopewell, Virginia, what he did in New York, he would have been a spectacular failure. Yeah. And so he understood that in Hopewell, you love people so that they listen to your preaching. In New York, you preach so that people will let them love you. Mm -hmm. That's an important understanding. Not everything's going to be that black and white, but he gives you a good perspective on how your own people's needs you need to respond to them, not give them, not force something on them. He was coming out of Gordon Conwell and Hopewell, very two heady academic environments. And he quickly learned in Hopewell, Virginia, what he was doing there just wasn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. He, well, the theoretical was the other yeah, one. The theoretical, like, yeah. The theoretical side of things. Cause you, cause you talked about, you, you mentioned kind of in passing earlier, this idea of how he's a shift might be a shift in some ways. And it does seem like he was church planting before it was cool. He was, he was in a, a place where he was doing a lot of apologetics and intellectual yeah. type stuff. So what are some of those kind of things? that? Well, you know, the, the significance about Tim, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into something here that is a major, major influence of mine at the Gospel Coalition and a major part of what we do. In the first message ever delivered at a Gospel Coalition meeting, this was May of 2005, uh, Tim did an exploration of Jonathan Edwards and his successors and essentially of how the reformed movement in America cracked up after the first great awakening. And he said what, and he is borrowing from Noel and Marsden and some other broader sort of Dutch reformed work in there. And he said, what happened was the cultural apologetics group ran off in one direction, the new divinity. Then the, kind of biblical orthodoxy, biblical theology group, that kind of ran in a different direction. That was Princeton. And then the revivalist part ran in a different direction, and that was Finney. 
And he said, but what's needed is to bring all of those three groups back together, Hmm. biblical theology with cultural apologetics, with spiritual renewal. And I think that's the best way I can think of to remember what Tim Keller was trying to do, Mm -hmm. was to bring those three things together the way that I think he would say was the best of Reformed theology at its different epochs. Now, keep it he so he would cite Ed Clowney as an example. And by the way, if people see this in my book, reminds me that not many people have talked about this. Ed Clowney basically gave this vision at a commencement address um, at Westminster Seminary. He said, our seminary has been known as the seminary of the clenched fist, but we want to become known as the seminary of the bowed head. Mm. And so he talked about bringing those things together. And when I found that in the course of researching this book, I immediately recognized that was the vision for TGC that Tim Keller was Mm. bringing back. So that's the main thing is that I think he would hark back to Edwards, to Calvin, to Kuyper and Bavink and say, whenever Reformed theology has been at its best, it's when we bring these three dimensions together, the head, the heart, the hands. I mean, we can talk about all kinds of different things, but if you look at Tim, just basically, he's known for apologetics, which is in confessional theology, which is normally associated with kind of the aggressive, the courageous. He literally wrote the dissertation on the diaconate ministry and transformed the way churches do mercy ministry. That was one of his major academic contributions. That's sort of your hands or the compassion. But he also essentially became the chief innovator and cheerleader and inspiration of global city church planting. So the missional side, the commission side of things, I mean, he was groundbreaking in all three of those different areas. Yeah, that's really significant. That's really significant, and something I have to think a lot about working at, at TGC and at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Yeah. Okay. So, last question. You know, one of the critiques of Keller that have come out in several places, and we've seen this uh, multiple times, is something like, uh, you know, Tim Keller, what he di- what he does worked in New York in the '90s or in the early 2000s but doesn't work everywhere. And it certainly doesn't work in our sort of shifting culture we have right now in America. So what are your thoughts on yeah. that perspective of that was that winsomeness stuff, the the trying to avoid the big time po- politics type thing. That was great for a time, but we can't do that anymore. So Tim Keller's outdated. We'll say it that way. Yeah. Well, this is a, a complicated uh, question and I'll try to be succinct about it because I don't want to be reductionistic because I think I understand where it's coming from and I probably even sympathize with some of it. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I, um, I, I, I obviously want to defend Tim <laughs> on principle. Um, so again, this is kind of complicated. Um, the main thing I'd say is insofar as what Tim was doing is simply living out the fruit of the spirit, then obviously it's not passe. It's just <laughs> what we should always be doing. That should never change. The second thing is that it really hinges around the question of what kind of priority should evangelism be? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that's often criticized, Tim's often criticized for is that in the early 2000s, during the Bush administration, he was criticized for being too focused on cultural renewal. And now at the end of his life, he was criticized for being too evangelistic. That's an interesting dichotomy. You're not normally criticized for both of those things. But I think it helps to illustrate that it wasn't necessarily that he changed, but that there were some circumstances that changed. In some ways, people were worried about 
going too far in on a political agenda with a largely sympathetic uh, Republican Congress and president in George W. Bush. Like, wait a minute. No, we got to make sure to protect the the church. Well, then with a, some significant transformations, especially related to sexuality in the broader culture, the question becomes, well, evangelism is kind of a luxury for us mm-hmm. now. <laughs> we need to be focusing on just protecting our kids and just sort of, uh, and, and also even loving our neighbors in those ways. I, Tim's perspective was pretty clear. It was no matter what season you're in, you shouldn't really expect to fit in. You're going to be a counterculture, but you're still called to love your neighbors in tangible ways. And the most tangible, loving way you can love that you can take care of your neighbors is by telling them about Jesus and about salvation. So to the very end, Tim was unrepentant about his priority on evangelism. And I agree with him on that. He would have rejected other people saying, no, 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 we just, we can't really afford to be trying to think about evangelism right now because we've got, we've got to just protect the church. He would have rejected that. At the same time, I do think there's, he admitted um, in conversations with me at the end of his life, he definitely admitted that even though New York was not a hospitable place for evangelical Christians in the 1980s and 90s, that it had gotten worse. Mm. Um, and that he could see it in his grandchildren's generation, that something needed to change. Now, his his approach, which is, this is the vision behind the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, his approach was, we need other ways of being able to argue about the Orthodox faith and defend and preach and evangelize. So he was still focused on that. But I do think there's room to be able to ask, in a hyper-polarized culture war age, are there some things that we need to be able to advocate for out of love for our neighbors that have inevitably partisan implications in this particular moment? Mm -hmm. And so whether it's in his lifetime, things related to abortion, especially in a place like New York City, or if it's in our day, things related to transgender identities, and especially with youth, again, I think there's room for us to be able to say that we can simultaneously talk to people about Jesus and not be jerks about it, and also advocate for good sense, common good approaches that will protect the unborn and also protect children from mutilation and abuse in the name mm-hmm. of transgender identities. So I don't think those two things are are contradictory to each other, but it's certainly true that Tim leaned hard in the direction of evangelism and was loath to, uh, to jump into some partisan uh, political issues. Yeah. I think you, you had mentioned earlier the sort of the critique that he can be squishy or the third way sort of thing is that doesn't, seem to be right actually when you're when you're reading and listening to him it's not that he's ever compromising on that he just seems to be trying to figure out what's the best way to do it or to talk about yeah, it yeah and there were just some issues that he just didn't talk a lot about like abortion right. yeah so that's um but of course i i've been working i worked with tim for a long time and i chose to take a little bit of a different course on that at the gospel coalition especially related to transgender and abortion issues and I, again i just don't think those are mutually restrictive. I think the way one of the ways that we love our neighbors is through mercy ministry. Another way we love our neighbors is by advocating for life and for yeah. and for God-given sexuality. 
Um, and it's not that Tim disagreed at all on that. Right. It just weren't things that he spoke out on very yeah. much. So anyway. Yeah, context does seem to matter too. I mean, you know, you're you're if you're in New York and a lot of those people are there and you're trying to not you're trying to keep them from leaving, maybe have them come back the next week versus, you know, you mentioned the South where maybe most of your church and your town might all agree with you already. Those are two different ways of approaching. And so that's hard yeah. too, you know. Well, that it is and and we should be clear that there's a a good side and a downside to this. So the same person who says, I mean, we've actually seen this in a couple recent conversions. Um, one person who converted in large part through Tim's help, she was really helped by, by Tim and others saying, you've got to clear everything else out and just focus on who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Focus on the resurrection, let everything else follow from that. Then there's another example of a person who converted under Keller's ministry who has come out recently and just been really angry saying, well, I never would have become an evangelical Christian if you told me that men should be leaders in the home and mm-hmm. in the church, or that you opposed abortion, or that you thought homosexuality was, homosexual practice was a sin. You know, so it, it, it can cut both ways. Sometimes yeah. it's very clarifying for people. Oh, I need to block that other stuff out and just focus on Jesus. Everything else follows from his lordship. But then sometimes people really feel like it can be a bait and switch. And I know that Tim was never trying to do that. Yeah. But by majoring on the majors, sometimes people do really still get ticked at you about what they perceive to be your your minors, which are not minors in terms of biblical, biblical discipleship. Um, but um, But yeah, they can feel that way because they didn't hear about it as much. Yeah. I did love that Molly interview where she said, you know, I'm talking to Tim and he's like, yeah, we'll see if you believe in Jesus. I don't know. And then she turns around, J.D. Greer's like, you, you walking down the aisle yet or what? You know, <laughs> she, she needed a little bit of both, you know, the best, best, what did she call J.D.? A Christian notary <laughs> yeah, <laughs> notarized her conversion. It's a All right. Well, well, Colin, this is a great conversation. I appreciate you doing it. Like I said, I know you've done a lot of these, but uh, hopefully this will be helpful for people to think bigger picture and how to learn from, from Tim. So well, he asked a lot of great questions, Brandon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.